Our last show of 2020 ends as COVID-19 is still headline news. For many, this is the year we wish it weren't. The year of loss, the year of isolation, the year of uncertainty. The World Health Organization has designated 2020 the year of the nurse. They're frontline champions who are trained in medicine, but they also provide essential emotional and compassionate support to patients and their families. The question is, at what cost? As far back as 2013, Nursing Times, an industry publication, conducted a study of nearly 10,000 nurses, and it found that 62% of them had considered quitting their jobs due to stress. Another 61% said they were unable to give patients the care they deserved because they were simply overwhelmed. Seven years later, that pace is not only commonplace, but amplified. The stress that healthcare workers are dealing with in 2020 is unprecedented. Exhaustion, post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, insomnia, and other issues are pushing some to the brink. In the wake of the pandemic, nurses are asked to shoulder many emotional and physical burdens like processing patient deterioration and death in high numbers, working overtime dressed from head to toe in PPE, or worrying about caring for patients without that proper equipment. They are living with the anxiety that they might pass this virus on, whether it's to a loved one or a stranger at the grocery store. Add in being a communication and oftentimes the emotional end-of-life care bridge between a patient and their loved ones, and the pressure is unimaginable. We may call nurses humanitarian superheroes for any number of reasons, but at the end of the day, they are people just like you and me. For one nurse who for decades has been a champion and an advocate for her patients and their families through some tough medical therapies, even death, the reality of COVID is beyond her imagination. For another, nursing was not where his career began, but a shift has brought a sense of purpose in caring for both his ICU patients and his comrades in arms. It's called One's Breath, and our story starts here. I'm Brooke Bechtold, and this is Impactually. Sharon Heath is a nurse who works in southern rural New Jersey. Her career has spanned more than 25 years, where she's watched, listened, and learned why caring for her patients through trying times matters. For someone facing a significant or terminal disease, having a skilled nurse like Sharon in your corner, whose empathy is so finely tuned to your medical needs and your loved one's questions and concerns, peace of mind becomes the common thread through which everyone can process. So um, I am the palliative care nurse for the hospital system, one of the hospitals in the system I work for. And um, so palliative care, let's start with that, if I may. (laughs) Most people don't know what it is. I see patients with a serious or chronic illness. So um, I see patients who are newly diagnosed 
or coming in and out of the hospital with symptoms from their normal disease process. I do a lot of end-of-life conversations and goal-setting with patients and their families, really, uh, communication. Um, so my job has kind of intensified in the COVID-19 because we see a lot of chronic patients with chronic disease or elderly patients um, that may not have had disease processes but have end-of-life bodies, older aging bodies that are weaker, and the COVID-19 is um, affecting them greatly. We have lost a lot of patients. I see the, the dying patients on a normal basis, but my involvement has doubled with the amount of patients coming with COVID-19. I think I have been involved with palliative care my whole career. I think much of nursing and medicine, there is an element of palliative care. You have to be able to have the hard emotional conversations with people. You have to be able to uh, be able to read emotions in patients and families and find their limit. So you can't push people beyond their limit. Um, and it's nothing we're trained in medicine for. I spoke with Sharon back in April when COVID was still relatively new and everyone was still trying to understand its mechanisms and puzzle its wrath. Much of what was appearing on the news were skyrocketing regional positivity rates, alarming hospital capacity data, and unfathomable statistical reports of the dead. Masses of lives lost plotted on graphs as faceless percentages on headline after headline. Everything in numbers. Little, if anything, was telling us who these people were, what they did, their impact. Seven months later, we're still reeling from COVID's rampage, with the national daily average of those dying surpassing the lives lost on September 11th. You're you're dealing with so many sick people, and you're de- you're you're dealing with continuous deaths that. I know the normal staff, they're not used to this volume of deaths, you know. They're used to maybe one here and there or knowing that I'm guiding a patient or us being able to get them home with their families with hospice, which some of these people are so sick that never is going to be able to happen um, because they can't breathe without the level of oxygen we have here to give them. So the staff is going in through huge emotions and post-traumatic stress. Sharon is quick to talk about the fact that as humans, death is inevitable. Some people are okay talking about it, and others have a very hard time with it, even people who work in healthcare. Death can be seen as a failure. So the whole grieving process after death is different. It's going to be a lot more... The effects, like we're worried about the loss of jobs and the economic effects, they're huge too. But even now, like the social isolation, people with anxiety disorders or just depression or just everyday disconnect is going to intensify all those other emotions. How is the medical staff in your hospital supporting one another? Has it changed? Is it intensified? 
So, um, I would say it intensified in the support for each other because we're, we're the only people here and we're all, you know, we are all in the same boat and we just have each other typically. I mean, you have your family, but a lot of people aren't even able to be with their family. People who have young children have, um, sent their kids to be with their parents or another family member so they're, that they're not exposing them. The hours people are working are greater, longer, more exhausting if they're not going to survive death happens, even with every bit of technology. That part is devastating not only to a family, but the staff, because doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and technicians and housekeepers and even dietitians, they're all human too. And it makes us address our own mortality. We feel the loss and the grief. A lot of times doctors aren't able to have these conversations in good parts of life because they feel it's a failure. Um, when they can't save someone. So, you know, it's a lot of things that go on normally in a good time of medicine, and you it's intensified because the numbers are huge and who's dying. Um, and it's devastating when it's someone who's young and it happens and everything we do to try to help them survive doesn't work. And life doesn't get any less complicated at the end of a shift. Frontline workers are balancing the needs of their own families with the added complexity of being in the at-risk crosshairs of COVID. For most, spending every day in virus-contaminated environments, they don't see their loved ones for weeks or months at a time. A week before I spoke with her, Sharon signed her 90-year-old mother into hospice. Doctors, nurses, and other medical technicians are having a hard time finding that balance between caring for others and caring for themselves. In fact, they are notorious for not taking care of themselves. And when their own resistance is lowered because of mental health emotions of inadequacy, trauma, and exhaustion, that's a big problem. With every passing day, these psychological battles interfere with the ability to work at the intensity and focus that their jobs demand. And even though vaccines are beginning to be rolled out, no one truly knows when this will end. John Shepard lives in Indianapolis, Indiana, and became a nurse as a second career. Right out of college, he lived in Chicago, and for 15 years, he worked in the insurance industry. Nursing wasn't even something he'd considered. If you would have asked me my first time around um, in, in college, if that I, you know, or imagining that I would become a nurse, I, I don't think I would, you know, I, I would never even considered it. Um, mostly because I didn't think I would be able to do it. But as I think, as I got older, and um, you know, I, I figured out what I wanted to do uh, late in life. I've always been kind of a late bloomer. And so that's why I chose nursing. 
I remember, you know, first walking onto the into an ICU and thinking, yeah, this is where, this is where I want to work. Um, uh, it just seemed like home. You, you know, being a nurse anywhere is a is a difficult gig, right? Um, and um, but something about being in the ICU and the collaboration. Um, that is required and the attention and the, and the, um, the commitment. It was just kind of grabbed hold of me. And so I've stayed in the ICU the whole time. For the last 16 years, John has been an intensive care nurse with Indiana University Methodist Hospital. But six years ago, despite truly loving his job, he began to feel a sense of mental exhaustion and it was getting in the way of his personal and professional well-being. There were times when it was just getting to be too much, right? And it was affecting my personality. It was, it was affecting my interactions. I was just kind of getting, you know, a little bit burnt out. And so I started a meditation practice in the ICU uh, before my shift. I got the approval from our manager, and I just basically brought in my phone and a little speaker, and I sat down. It kind of, you know, in this little, in the unit, but kind of off to the side and uh, 15 minutes before my shift and just practice and just did a meditation, right? A, a guided meditation on my phone. Some people started joining it and then it grew. And then this has just been a, literally an evolution. In 2018, John was recognized by the American Nurses Creditation Center as a Magnet Nurse of the Year for bringing mindfulness and meditation practice to the Trauma Intensive Care Unit. In 2019, he graduated from the Mindfulness Training Institute in Berkeley, California. He's also a yoga instructor. John vividly remembers the day early COVID when he came across a coworker fully dressed in protective garb and visibly shaken about entering a COVID positive patient's room. John asked him, Are you okay? And he said, John, I'm a nurse, and my wife's a nurse. We have three small children, and we're just waiting to find out which one of us is going to bring this home. That moment stuck with John. This year, with the best interest of his fellow IU healthcare workers in mind, John officially shared his own passions and created the IU Center for Mindful Practice. You know, I, I wasn't told to do it. I just thought, well, let's do this. And it's um, so I did. Yeah. And I created it for um, obviously for our mostly for the staff because, um, you know, what we do is taking care of patients is really important and improving our ability to pay attention, our improving our ability to concentrate and our ability to listen to our bodies as a source of wisdom uh, and to listen to our bodies for what it needs so we can take care of ourselves so that we can take care of others. I mean, that's kind of a no brainer. And so um, we opened up the critical care recovery center just this year, which is designed for, patients who have, um, and mostly COVID patients, who have been hospitalized in the ICU for a long period of time and have met certain criteria, like been on a ventilator for X number of days, received um, sedation, um, and had a, had a, 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 you know, a stay that was very traumatic for them, and probably they don't remember much of it. 
right? And they were on life-saving um, equipment and devices and were very, very as sick as you can get. And so some of those patients we know now can suffer from symptoms of PTSD. So we're working with those patients in a lot of ways, but one of them is bringing um, breath awareness practices, mindfulness practices, helping them make sense of what happened to them. Healthcare has not cornered the market when it comes to struggling with mental illness. Pre-COVID, nearly one in five U.S. adults reported having a mental illness in the past year, with over 11 million of those sharing that the severity of their functional impairment actually limited their activities. Okay, but what the heck does breath have to do with relieving depression and PTSD? It actually makes a lot of sense. Breathing is a visceral function. Automatically, we breathe. We don't think about doing it. As a life-sustaining physiological function, it just happens. But behaviorally, with focus, we can control it. Think speaking, singing, playing wind instruments. These are all examples of voluntary, short-lived interventions of breath. And as it relates to our oxygen consumption and our metabolism, breathing is the energy-producing intermediary between mind and body with amazing health benefits. As it relates to coping with stress, meditation increases the relationship between someone's self-awareness, their body's physical functioning, and how they breathe. And controlling breath is a great method to release physical tension. Here, try it. What you're doing all by yourself is calming down. And according to author and Dr. Ravenir Jareth, this conscious breath work, quote, has been shown to positively affect immune function, hypertension, asthma, nervous system imbalances, and stress-related disorders. Mindfulness meditation is not only being used in COVID wards. And we also opened it up to for yoga for moms too in the in the uh, labor and delivery and uh, we we're using the center now where uh, we bring down expecting moms um, and we have a, a yoga therapist who works there and she spends a couple hours with them teaching them mindful movement Dr. David Johnson is a neurointerventional radiologist at the University of Vermont Hospital he is one of only 500 neurointerventional radiologists in the United States and is a leader in the pioneering efforts in treatments, technologies, and cutting-edge research of vascular diseases of the brain, neck, and spine, including the diagnosis and treatment of strokes and aneurysms, which can cause devastating damage. You want to talk about stress that comes with a job. I asked him if he practices mindful meditation as a form of support and the integral part it plays for him both personally and professionally. So I never really considered it to be like meditation or like, you know, mindfulness when I first started, like just trying to be very, very present in the moment. And, uh, you know, my, the time that I spend outside or the, spend, the time I spend like mountain bike the first like hour that I spend mountain biking is just going to be climbing, like doing a technical climb to get up someplace so I can get the quick downhill. That is a meditation. And so it's very, very, very um, clarifying. So 
at work, I try to be very present for any uh, procedure that I'm going to do because the consequences of making a mistake are just so great. And so I do take a little bit of time before I do a procedure just to kind of go over everything that we're going to do in my head and then just kind of like get focused, get rid of everything else. And then when I go into the procedure, that's all that matters is just taking care of the procedure, let's say, taking care of the patient and doing the best thing that I can do and keeping everybody else focused in the room and grounded in the room. So there's no like there's no noise. There's no like chaos. It's just we're here for this person right now. This is what we're taking care of. So that's how I look at things like that. But the toll COVID is taking on the medical community is unprecedented. According to Dr. Claire Resba, an anesthesiologist at Hunter Holmes McGuire Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Richmond, Virginia, as of October 2020, over 1,500 U.S. healthcare workers have died from COVID. Dr. Lorna Breen was a gifted, confident, and unflappable supervising emergency room doctor from New York City who had treated COVID patients. Ultimately, she tested positive for it and recovered. But witnessing the devastation it causes and knowing people are dying unnoticed was way too much. On April 26th of 2020, she committed suicide. While suicide among healthcare workers is twice that of the general population, sadly, fear, isolation, and watching their coworkers and loved ones become ill and die is not new. COVID is shining a much-needed light on the absolute necessity of mental health support. Historically, with few options available to them without professional consequence, and an insidious stigma about mental health within the medical community, could mindful meditation support break down access barriers and be a true beacon of hope for getting help? But one of the kind of silver linings, I think, is that this is showing, you know, this shines a light on how critical it is that we have to take care of ourselves, right? You you have to, you can't pour something from an empty cup, right? You've got to find ways to refill it. And so we're working on that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Can you walk us through a mindful practice? Sure. Like, how about a couple, like a minute or so? Yeah, two? Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Okay. Yeah, I could do that. Okay, so normally... First thing we just want to do is just have a, a back that is straight. Maybe allow the shoulders to fall away from the ears. Allow the muscles of the face to relax. Eyes can be open or closed. Let's just start by simply simply just noticing what it feels like to be sitting. How do you know that you're sitting? And we notice sensations in the feet. 
Maybe feel the cool air moving across your skin. And then just simply gently shift your attention to the sensation, the felt sense of breathing. And then maybe just start to ride that wave, ride the waves of breathing, in-breath, out-breath. And then you notice that you're caught up in a thought or story or whatever. Notice it. Maybe label it, maybe not. And just see if you can let it go. And come back. There's times during my own practice when, it, you know, it brings awareness to like the my mind and, you know, and realizing, geez, I am just, re my mind is just really active right now and I can't settle it down. And my attention keeps getting pulled away and being okay with that, right? Um, and this isn't about stopping the mind or, or you know, making thoughts the enemy, but just noticing, yeah, I've just got a lot on my mind right now. My mind's very active. And then just, if I can sit long enough, and usually my practice is around 20 minutes, and I resist the, the urge to, to move. And once the body settles into a stillness, um, the mind kind of follows, right? So we just did a short practice there, but the longer you can sit, and that's why posture is such an important thing, is the, the mind, you know, the mind kind of starts to take a back seat a little bit, and the body becomes a source of stability and uh, focus and centeredness. Social workers are embracing the positive effects of mindfulness meditation and are incorporating the philosophy and innovative practice into their work with patients. Offering a greater understanding to its benefits, they're using it to help identify problems and find coping mechanisms and solutions to life's issues.
Social workers provide crucial support and are trained to champion a capacity in each of us to engage with self-sustaining activities like mindfulness meditation. They have a passion to see options and possibilities, especially when we are in need of control and clarity. With a jump of over 5% since 2017, 35 million Americans use meditation, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's no wonder why it's become the most popular complementary health practice for Americans with one's breath. What do you think we as a race um, or as humans have to learn from COVID? Uh, That we are all on this earth in it together. That one person's uh, happiness depends on another, that one person's loss and sadness evolves around everyone else, not just us individually. I have one last question, well, two last questions that I came up with last night when I couldn't sleep. Can you tell me about the recovery celebrations in your hospital? So we, I did see a patient being discharged the other day and all the nurses kind of stood in a line on two sides and were clapping while that person was being wheeled out of that unit. Um, I know the ICU, when they're able to get someone off a ventilator or move them to the next unit, the staff is elated and, you know, everyone's congratulating the patient. Can you see their smiles even though you can't see their faces when they're when that's happening? You can. You can. You can you can really tell when somebody's sad or smiling depending on their eyes. Um one one other thing I've learned to do is the eyes are the window to the soul. It's really a true statement. People who are fearful, you can tell. People who are tearful or sad, you can tell. And when people are happy, you can see it in their eyes. So, you know, the masks make you, as we said earlier, not be able to see the rest of you or your whole facial expression, but the eyes tell a lot. Yeah, they're the window to the soul. It, it's, a, it's a huge way of how I figure out how to ask questions or where to stop a conversation or where a patient is scared to death. I like knowing that that you're out there looking at, th- you know, learning about people just through their eyes. I've never yeah, done that. Sometimes the eyes are, you know, I mean, I usually assess everything, but sometimes the eyes are what give the biggest, tell me the most. Over 300,000 are reported to have died with untold others unaccounted for. Many of us have been forever changed by where we work, adapting in a distanced society. Healthcare and other essential workers remain on the COVID front lines. They are the human connection to these senseless losses. We are forever changed, coming to grips with the impact continues to be a struggle. But take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. Impactually is created and produced in cooperation with HUM Productions. Our web address is hum, H-U-M-M, productions.com. 
Financial support for the show is generously provided by JLB Images and listeners like you. We'd like to extend our sincerest thanks to our guests, Sharon Heath, John Shepard, and Dr. David Johnson. For more information about John's work and to see photos of the three of them, we have links in our show notes. Special thanks to Dixon's Violin for providing their song, Raindrops and Sunshine, for this episode. A link to their website can be found in our show notes, and their music is available on all major streaming platforms. Our star team, Christine Murdoch, senior producer and editor. Sound engineering by Matt Wheeler. Music curation by L. Lively of Crooked Tree Creative. Norman Bauer and Lee Bechtold for digital artwork and web design. And Andrew Sachs for our original music. Subscribe and listen to us on iTunes, Pandora, Spotify, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate it as it helps others find us too. We would love to hear from you, so send us an email or find us on social media. Pitch us ideas about people who you think would be great to have on our show. Maybe it's even you. We'll be back soon with another extraordinary program, Everyone Has a Story, Share. I'm Brooke Bechtold. Thanks for listening.